Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. For many poor migrants, asylum seekers, and refugees who live in horrible conditions, often in overcrowded accommodations with poor infrastructure, social distancing is a privilege, and medical attention a distant dream. During a global pandemic, these become life-threatening circumstances. Here in Europe, refugee camps are bracing for an outbreak of the novel coronavirus. Greek authorities are desperately attempting to ship migrants away from Moira, Europe's largest refugee camp, before the virus hits it. And across the continent in France, refugees living in the dystopian camps in Calais scoff at the ludicrous notion of social distancing. As states began to shut their borders in Africa, tens of thousands of migrants have been left stranded at frontiers, ports and transit camps with no suitable infrastructure to accommodate them. In America, similar concerns have been expressed over makeshift migrant camps at the US-Mexico border. This pandemic is also casting a heavy shadow on Asia. In West Asia, countries like Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria have some of the world's worst numbers of displaced people per capita, while in South and East Asia, countries like Bangladesh host the large numbers of Rohingya minority fleeing from the conflict in Myanmar, and they're scrambling to prevent a major outbreak in refugee camps. In today's episode of The New Arab Voice, we're going to focus on how the refugee and migrant population is at a greater risk under the present pandemic, and why this is likely to spur a new humanitarian crisis. We'll be speaking with Rula Aman from the UNHCR on how they are supporting refugees at this time. Refugees are concerned. IDPs are afraid. They have more challenges in order to protect themselves and their families. Then, we'll be talking to a resident of the largest refugee camp in the world on how Rohingya refugees are dealing with a possible outbreak of the virus in the camp. If we will try to uh, maintain social distancing, at that time, we will have to live hungry. We will have to be hungry. We, we will not get food. We'll also outline how the ill treatment of migrant workers in the Middle East has been exacerbated by the pandemic. We'll be speaking to Ali Mohammed from MigrantRights.org in Bahrain on how workers in the Arab Gulf states are at particular risk. It shows the disparity, the inequities between uh, of this labor migration system between nationals and non-nationals. Finally, keep listening to hear my conversation with Dr. Don Chatty, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at the University of Oxford, regarding the history of migration in the region and what it can teach us about the future after the pandemic. After the Black Death of Europe in the, the 14th century, serfs or workers became really scarce. And in some countries, in some parts of, of, of Europe at the time, it was the impetus for serfs to sort of free themselves and to sell their labor to those who would provide them with the best conditions. New figures outline that those living in internal displacement is at a record 50.8 million worldwide, with an additional 26 million people having fled across borders as refugees. 
the United Nations International Organization for Migration, said many migrants all over the world were attempting to return to their countries of origin but were unable to do so. While governments are dealing with a myriad of other problems regarding the pandemic, aid workers are there to safeguard those most vulnerable. Aid organizations have faced many challenges tending to refugees in crowded camps. The dilemma now is that while it is vital to avoid bringing the deadly virus from the outside, many organizations and aid workers provide crucial support for those most vulnerable. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or the UNHCR, is a United Nations agency with a mandate to protect refugees, forcibly displaced communities, and stateless people and assist in their voluntary repatriation, local integration, or resettlement to a third country. Senior Communications Advisor for the UNHCR in the Middle East and North Africa, Rula Amin, based in Amman, Jordan, spoke with me about how the organization has had to restructure its activities to continue to safely provide aid for refugees everywhere. This is one of probably an unprecedented once-in-a-lifetime where we have to work in an emergency, but all over. So usually there's an earthquake somewhere or a conflict or a war zone, but all around things are normal. So, you know, you can send new colleagues in, you can bring in supplies, headquarters is operating, you can rotate people, you can plan. With the COVID-19, everything has been disrupted. So Even at headquarters in Geneva, our colleagues had to work from home. Supply routes had been disrupted. Restrictions on travel and the supply chains had actually meant that we had to adopt in uh, so many ways in order to ensure that we we can stay on the ground, we can still deliver the much-needed assistance to refugees and internally displaced people. We distributed soap, sanitizers, we are building isolation units in different areas near in refugee camps or in urban setups because many of the refugees are not living in refugee camps. And so we need to make sure that if there are cases or at least uh, cases that are suspected to have the virus, we will be able to help refugees isolate because most refugees live in crowded areas and that's another major challenge. She told me that the living conditions for most refugees makes it difficult for them to protect themselves against contracting the virus. Refugees are concerned. IDPs are afraid. They have more challenges in order to protect themselves and their families. They have more difficulties. People don't have access to enough access to clean water to drink. So imagine to clean for clean water in order to wash their hands. So what UNHCR has been doing is first launched a huge awareness campaign amongst refugees because it's very important to make sure that refugees are aware of the risks and they know what to do in case there's an outbreak. These people have been suffering for years. This will add to their burdens. We have to remember refugees are already suffering because of COVID-19, because of the socioeconomic impact of the virus. Restrictions on travel and, and um, you know, lockdowns meant that many refugees lost work opportunities. They don't have savings so that they can pay for their rent, they can bring food. They say if they don't die of the virus, they are going to die of hunger. When the refugees suffer economically, they start resorting to what we call negative coping mechanisms, which means they start adapting certain ways in order to cut on their expenses. 
They might stop sending their kids to school. They might get their daughters to, uh, to marry when they're like 15 or 14. They might get, their kids might get sick and they won't take them to a doctor. So it's a, it's a really vicious cycle. Rula urged host governments to give refugees access to healthcare services, as some countries in the region, such as Lebanon, deny refugees automatic or free access to government healthcare facilities. So in places like Jordan, in places like Lebanon, we wanted to work with the hosting governments in order to help them ensure that the refugees have access to all kinds of preventative measures. But that's also a challenge because most refugees are living in countries who are struggling on their own economically. And this struggle means that the health services may not be equipped to be able to handle such an outbreak. So it was necessary for UNHCR to work with these host governments to support their national systems, the health uh, services, the hospitals, to support them maybe with equipment, with finance, in order to expand the capacity of the health services so they can include refugees. Recent trends in global politics have undermined the work of international organizations providing humanitarian aid. But with the current pandemic, such trends could completely decimate them. Last month, the UN's emergency relief coordinator, Mark Lowcock, told the Security Council that out of the UN's 41 major programs, 31 will be closing down in the next few weeks if they could not secure additional funds. Rula warns that although infections in the Middle East haven't reached their peak yet, the international effort to contain the pandemic relies on every country making sure no marginalized group is left dealing with the virus on its own and contributes to the funds needed for this fight. Countries like Yemen are still severely underfunded. Some of our programs are at risk of either being reduced or closing down because we do not have enough funds to support these programs. So we are making a very strong appeal for countries not to forget uh, these marginalized groups. It's not about just moral obligations and legal obligations. It's also a, a self, from a self-interest because this virus, the efforts to combat this virus, if it excludes anybody, any marginalized groups, that will mean the efforts to contain the virus will fail and the virus will make another round and another cycle and we will not be able to beat it. The safety of the strongest healthcare systems is as vulnerable as the weakest health system in the world. And that's why we insist that donor countries, rich countries, have to pay attention and have to support these countries. Now, refugees fleeing life-threatening circumstances in their countries of origin are the most vulnerable subgroup of the global migrant population. Now, they also have to escape a deadly virus. The largest refugee camp in the world is located on the southeast coast of Bangladesh, in a city called Cox's Bazar. It is also a fishing port known for its very long, sandy beachfront facing the Bay of Bengal. These waters are a very real threat to the survival of many hoping to reach the safe, sandy shores of Cox's Bazar, where they will be escorted to Kutupalong refugee camp. 
Rohingyas have been persecuted by the authorities in Myanmar since 2017, when 700 people from the Muslim ethnic minority were forced to flee across the border to Bangladesh in search for safety. Myanmar is now facing allegations of genocide over its vicious military crackdown in the Rakhine state, the home of the Rohingya people. The Myanmar army, known as the Tatmadaw, has refused to extend a national ceasefire announced last week to include the Arakan army, an ethnic Rakhine rebel group pushing for independence. The military have targeted schools, houses, buses, and even burned a village of 700 homes to the ground in actions that echoed the 2017 campaign against the Rohingya. Rights groups have painstakingly documented forced disappearances, arrests, torture, and the killing of men who were accused of being members of the AA. According to a UNHCR report released in March, there are currently 859,808 Rohingya Muslims currently residing in Cox's Bazar. Roe is one of them. He's an 18-year-old resident of Camp 15 in the Kutupalong refugee camp in the city. He came here in 2017 with thousands of others fleeing the brutal massacre of their people. In 2017, there is many history that Rohingya are facing systematic and structural violence from the Buddhist, Buddhist and the extremists. So in 2017, when I get up for a study at night, at that time, I was hearing just something, the, the voices of gun, but I don't know what's happening uh, into the village. Because uh, at the time I was just a student, I was just to get up to a study. So when I was hearing like the voices of guns, at the time I asked from my parents like what's happening actually uh, outside of the of my home. Uh, at the time, no one know about what's happening actually. Uh, just we are hearing the voices of guns. At that morning, we saw some soldiers uh, is coming to our village. And when they arrived to the village, at the time they arrested so many people from the village. Roe started the Rohingya Student Network, which has around 300 members aged from 15 years old to 25. They raise awareness on human rights issues related to the Rohingya community within their camps. When I was studying in Myanmar, then I realized that my community are like facing discrimination from the Buddhists. So at the time I thought like I have to do something for my community. I mean, I tried to study continuously, but still I did not get any chance to study. So I thought that maybe I can do something better for my community. So I, uh, I mean, I inspire to my friends, to my colleagues who have studied with me in Myanmar and to whom I like, we have to do something good for my community. In our country, like Buddhist people think us, we are weak. By thinking like that, they exclude us. So we have to be a valuable community. We have to be a powerful community. The Bangladeshi government cut off the internet in the camps late last year and denied refugees access to mobile phone SIM cards. Those like Roe, who are desperately trying to get attention from the international media on the grave situation they're facing, have to leave the camp to use wireless internet connection in Cox's Bazaar, which puts them even more at risk of bringing the virus into the camps. Roe says that this ban on the internet also meant that many people still don't understand or even know about the gravity of the coronavirus pandemic. He says some NGOs are providing information about COVID-19, but he and other young people who can find ways to access the internet under the government's radar are also sharing the information they find online with their families and other residents of the camps. 
With Ramadan, crowded living conditions, and reports of cases of COVID in the town just outside the refugee camp, the Rohingya community is living a state of grave panic. In this time, actually, it's very hard for the Rohingya people because uh, it's uh, Ramadan time, also COVID-19 outbreak. People cannot go out of the camp. People cannot out from the shelter. So people have not any income resource. So people are not getting any, uh, you know, nutritious food for the Ramadan. And no one would be safe if the COVID-19 reached to the camps. Rose says that he doesn't believe that there are no cases of COVID in the camp. But he tells me there's a serious lack of testing kits. This is why he wants the Bangladeshi government and aid relief organizations to establish a clear way to prevent the virus from entering the camps. Uh, Still, they didn't uh, test anyone in the camp, into the camp. Uh, COVID-19 reached to the camp. At that time, we will not have any option to save from that. So before reaching that, I would like to suggest one thing to the government of Bangladesh and also other peoples uh, who are caring to the COVID-19. If we can set up uh, a COVID-19 checkpoint at the entrance of age camp, at the time, I think no any COVID-19 can enter to the camps. Gemma Snowden is a communications officer with the World Food Programme. She put me in touch with Ro. She's been witnessing how vulnerable the Rohingya community is to the difficult conditions in the camp. This is a disaster-prone terrain that they're living on. Uh, So they face two cyclone seasons and one monsoon season every year. And you have to remember that the shelters in the refugee camps, they're made of tarpaulin and bamboo. So, I mean, even when we have uh, a windstorm, a mild windstorm like one that went through the other day, it does displace families. And last year during the monsoon season, which lasts from June to August, uh, in one 24-hour rain event, there were 4,000 families who were displaced um, and thousands more who were affected and lost their food, their belongings, everything they owned, basically. So conditions in the camp are difficult for, for people at the best of times. Jamal also says that there aren't many economic opportunities for those living within the camps. Livelihood opportunities in the camps are quite limited. Um, we have been working with people on uh, doing things like making homestead gardens um, in front of or even on top of their shelters using vertical gardening methods Um, and sometimes people can sell surplus produce but a lot of Rohingya come from farming backgrounds um, and there's there's obviously no farmland uh, in the most densely populated refugee camp in the world. Um, So livelihood opportunities for people are limited and uh, what we've seen over the past few weeks as well is that not only in the camps but also across Bangladesh um, because of COVID-19 there's been a a national holiday so a lot of people have been out of work during this period. She says that the World Food Programme has had to change its activities in order to keep providing food during the pandemic, especially during Ramadan when many are in need of adequate nutrition to keep healthy. Um, So we have changed the food distributions quite significantly because of COVID-19. So we have what we call e-voucher outlets in the camps. And this is, it's essentially a supermarket. It's meant to function like a supermarket. People are given a WFP assistance card and they can go to these WFP e-voucher outlets and then they can choose what they want. Um, It's just like going shopping with a debit card, basically. However, because of COVID-19, we've had to change the way that this operates. Um, So now we have the pre-packed rations. And so these rations are ready for people when they come to pick them up. 
and instead of coming as many times as they like each month, people can only come once a month to pick up these rations. And this is because we're, we have to limit the amount of people in the e-voucher outlet so that we can observe physical distancing, so that we can keep at least a metre a, a meter distance between um, each of the people coming. Um, so previously we could have 1,000, maybe even more, uh, households coming through the e-voucher outlet every single day, but now we only have maximum 500. Last week, Bangladeshi authorities confined dozens of Rohingya refugees like Ro to an unlivable island off its coast with little access to vital aid. They claimed they must be quarantined there to avoid spreading the coronavirus in its overcrowded camps. According to Human Rights Watch, up to 29 refugees are stuck on Basan Char, also known as the Floating Island, after being stranded at sea for over two months. As well as requiring urgent food, water and medical aid, the group is also at risk from severe weather, including cyclones and flooding. Those currently confined on Basan Char are thought to have been among the estimated 700 passengers on two fishing boats stranded in the Bay of Bengal for two months after being intercepted by the Bangladeshi Coast Guard on its way to Malaysia. The refugees, most of whom are under 20 years old, told Doctors Without Borders that hundreds had died on board and their corpses had to be thrown into the sea. Government response to COVID-19 in the region has been lackluster, according to many humanitarian relief agencies who have criticized nations all over the world for leaving the most vulnerable parts of the population behind. Jordan has given migrant workers on its territory a new deadline to leave the country, as authorities said that they would give priority to the employment of citizens due to the effect of the coronavirus pandemic on the economy. Jordan imposed strict lockdown measures to deal with the coronavirus pandemic, easing the lockdown recently amid a sharp fall in the number of reported cases. But as the government announced that most businesses could reopen, the Jordanian labor minister, Nidal Batanilla, said that at least 75% of the employees of businesses wishing to reopen would have to be Jordanian nationals. There are approximately 800,000 migrant workers in Jordan, and most of them come from Egypt. They are concentrated in the agricultural, construction, and catering sectors. Even before the coronavirus crisis, Jordan was taking steps to limit the presence of migrant workers in the economy. Ahmed Awad, the head of Jordan Labor Watch, which monitors working conditions in the country, told the New Arabs Arabic Language Service that the unemployment among Jordanians was 19% before the coronavirus pandemic, and now it would definitely increase. In Kuwait, the coronavirus pandemic has sparked discriminatory treatment towards foreigners and migrants. In April, a famous Kuwaiti actress sparked rage by calling for expatriates to be expelled from the oil-rich nation so that locals could be sure of having a hospital bed if they fell ill with coronavirus. This month, Kuwaitis were left outraged on social media after a video exposed a volunteer at a Ramadan food drive beating a migrant worker who was queuing for food. Kuwait, like other Gulf states, relies on a vast population of foreign workers for jobs ranging from domestic help, construction work, to white-collar jobs. Though the identity of the perpetrator of the victim remained unknown, migrant workers across the country regularly face serious abuse, discrimination, and racism from their Gulf counterparts. 
So many are saying that the pandemic is exacerbating the already existing vulnerabilities of migrant workers in the whole region. Concerns regarding the risk for migrant workers in the Middle East have been raised by humanitarian organizations, as many live in highly populated migrant labor camps in poor conditions that make social distancing impossible. Governments across the Gulf region have been scrambling to respond, offering aid and free healthcare, but with the abuse of migrant workers' rights often perpetrated by private employers under the Kafala sponsorship systems, human rights groups say more needs to be done. Kafala, or sponsorship system, legally binds the workers' residents in the country to their employer. It also straps workers in contracts that can only be terminated with the consent of employers who often require compensation as penalty even in the case of abuse or non-payment of salary. This is widespread throughout the region, including countries like Lebanon, and goes against many international regulations for the rights of workers, although countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Qatar have recently made steps to reform or completely abolish the system. We spoke to Ali Mohammed, the Arabic content editor for MigrantRights.org, based in Bahrain, to understand what the conditions for migrant workers are like on the ground. He says that this systematic discrimination was part of the reality of migrant workers before the outbreak of the coronavirus. So um, since the outbreak of the coronavirus, the economy of the Gulf states have obviously fallen down. And that plus the drop of oil prices, which basically put a lot of infrastructure uh, plans on halt. So we are witnessing a lot of cases which existed before Corona, of um, non-payment of wages. And uh, now you have many Gulf states that have implemented um, or amended certain sections of labor law to allow for companies to reduce wages or force them into unpaid leave. And at the same time, given the structure of labor migration in the Gulf, where um, migrants are not included into any safety nets. So they don't come under protection uh, where citizens do when it comes to protection of wages or uh, stimulate uh, uh, coming under protection of stimulus packages. Uh, it just uh, exasperated all that and it, it shows the disparity, the inequities between of this labor migration system between nationals and non-nationals. So basically this, what this means is that the Gulf countries are sending the problem, the COVID problem, back to the sending countries since these migrants have no access to residency, permanent residency and citizenship here. And I think this will have a great effect, like a very bad negative effect on sending countries since now they have to deal with a large number of unemployed people coming back. Ali visits homestays of migrant workers in Bahrain often and says he's always left shocked at what he sees. There are hundreds of workers that just are in that state of like, you know, nothingness. They're just like hopelessness and you could just see them. And uh, yeah, it's it's terrible. I mean, they had already problems, and with COVID, it's just it's it just intensified. We're kind of in a desperate situation where we don't know how it will go from now on, but uh, we have to hope for the best, I guess. The 
The coronavirus pandemic has not only shuttered formal international travel, but also slowed down the informal movement of people across borders, raising many questions about the future of migration. For example, border closures and strict lockdowns have led to a steep decline in the number of migrants coming from Central America to the United States, and similar patterns are emerging elsewhere in the world. But perhaps to better understand the future, we should look at the past. Whether to flee war or search for better opportunities, mass migration is a human pattern that is as old as time. And in the Middle East, this is no different. Dr. Don Chatty, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at the University of Oxford and the former director of the Refugee Studies Centre, explores these topics in her research. She's a social anthropologist whose interests lie in the Middle East, particularly with nomadic pastoral tribes and refugees. I spoke with her about her research and her surprising positivity about how the pandemic might influence migrant and refugee rights for the better. I'm really interested in knowing if you've done any research since the outbreak of the coronavirus in regards to refugees. Well, I haven't, which was, well, it's been very difficult because obviously as an anthropologist, I don't like to rely on uh, secondary sources. I like to be able to get out and talk to people myself. And that's been impossible since the outbreak of the coronavirus. Obviously, this is going to impact how researchers report on refugees within within camps, but also within areas that maybe aren't that reachable. So is there kind of talk in the community of how these circumstances are going to be mitigated? I think that's a, that's actually really a very difficult question. It's it's very obvious that the situation in the in informal settlements in Lebanon uh, are are very difficult. The situation in the formal camps in Greece are very difficult. But what is uh, interesting to follow is that there has been huge international support, agitation to try to mitigate, to try to improve those conditions. So as you probably read uh, earlier this week or towards the end of last week, eventually something like um, 25 uh, vulnerable people and unaccompanied minors were actually taken out of the camps and brought to the UK. The UK um, has recognized that they have an obligation under notions of family reunification in international law. And there's more of this coming. So there's a recognition that the conditions in the camps are dreadful. We can't actually do research in the camps, but we can try to work as, in this case, as advocates for their human rights. And what you could say is that with the coronavirus lockdown, people have begun to work and they've worked effectively by pressing our lawmakers and our politicians to do the right thing. And that is to try to improve the situation in some of these camps by moving people out and moving them onward. You've spoken a lot about contextual differences in how the Middle East and the West adopt international norms. So do you think that this is a chance for, for everyone to, to be the same with, with regards to reevaluating their, their rights towards migrants and their rights towards refugees? Or do you think that there will be differences between the West and the Middle East? Well, that's really a very interesting question. Obviously, I don't believe there's going to be one sort of hegemonic response it, that's impossible because the contexts are so different in, in these in these different countries. I do think that we're going to see sort of grassroots level different responses, but I'm hoping that these responses will be such that they improve 
conditions. I mean, you know, th this part of the world has a huge informal economy. But if we've learned any lesson from these pandemics, we have to find ways of uh, improving the conditions of our workers because they become, you know, af after the Black Death of Europe in the, the 14th century, serfs or workers became really scarce. And in some countries, in some parts of, the, of, of Europe at the time, it was the impetus for serfs to sort of free themselves and to sell their labor to those who would provide them with the best conditions. Whereas in other places, there was kind of like a lockdown on you people, we need you, you can't move, you can't go anywhere. So you you can't always predict the way things are going to turn out. But I, I would have thought that after this pandemic, realizing that it's not the end, there'll be more coming, that there'll be a move to create better living conditions so as to be able to control the spread of disease, that, that, uh, that health systems will be better funded. Can we talk a little bit about your research with regards to, uh, for example, I read that article on um, the duty to be generous. Mm -hmm. And I really like the idea that, um, you know, international norms don't really take into account or don't or don't reinforce rather natural cultural uh, norms. A lot of my writing comes as a response to what I'm reading and the kind of comments that I'm making. There has been really, I would say over the last decade, certainly in the West, uh, a, a concern, a worry, a fear, uh, and almost kind of like a, a scathing critique of many of the countries of the Middle East. In this case, I mean the Levant, uh, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, not having signed the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees, which requires a country to provide uh, asylum, to assess a person's stated fear of persecution, and if found to be correct, to provide them with with refuge, but at all costs, of course, never to send them back to the country that they fled. So the 51 Convention, which emerged out of World War II, was to give the individual human being, basically, a right to ask for asylum. That, along with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which says, you know, if you're persecuted in your country, you have the right to go to another country um, and to be uh, given asylum so that you can live in safety and dignity. Well, Lebanon hasn't signed that convention. Syria never signed it. Uh, Jordan never signed it. And although Turkey did sign that convention, it restricted its application to only refugees coming from Europe. So when you had the explosion uh, of uh, Iraqis fleeing Iraq, not so much in 2003, uh, you know, right after the invasion, but when the country really fell apart in 2006, 2007, they fled basically to Syria and Jordan in the hundred thousands. The, these people were accepted, but it wasn't because they had the country had signed the 51 convention. They were accepted for other reasons. And these other reasons are what I was talking about. It's that the, this, the duty to be generous, the duty to, to help people who are in need is a, almost a universal. Every society, every culture has this sense. Then when the Syrian uprising became an armed conflict and Syrians fled in huge numbers, you had now nearly 4 million in Turkey, which has a population similar to Germany. You had 1.1 uh, million in Lebanon, which only has a population of uh, 4 million. You had 
about 600,000 in Jordan, all these people were accepted as temporary guests, as uh, fellow brothers, as uh, temporary workers, whatever term you like. What I was trying to point out is that sometimes when you create a law, people then no longer feel they have a responsibility because there's a law. When we say we have international law to protect refugees, uh, to provide them with asylum, very often at, at the level of where things actually function, nothing happens. So, you know, look at the, the record for uh, Europe, for example, in terms of um, accepting refugees from the Syria crisis. Well, basically, what, what has happened in Europe is it became it became a fortress. More and more uh, rules were put into effect in order to prevent people from coming to ask for asylum. Whereas at the same time, there was no mechanism that was put into place, you know, at points prior to departure to help them to ask for that kind of humanitarianism. So that's where I would say that sometimes international law may not always be that successful, that you need to actually look at what happens at the local level within the community. And it's within the community, within social groups, that you find that when people see other people in need, they will look after them. When you look at see what's happened in Lebanon uh, in particular, but also in Jordan and also in Turkey, you find that at the local level, communities have really come up trumps. You you talk about how Syrian the exodus of Syrians um, is you know very similar to the flow of refugees that emerged after the Second World War. Um, I mean, is it because in the Second World War refugees? I mean, I think it was mostly Eastern European and Jewish refugees were they regarded more as part of Europe or part of the West than Syrians are because Syrians are regarded with kind of like an othering perception by Europeans and politicians kind of utilize that well but this this other ring is really very artificial you, you go back to world war one you know the arabs were meant to be the allies of the west uh, you know the arabs were promised uh, they would have their own nation if they came in and helped the west so the other ring was uh, I, I would say emerged um, uh, perhaps in the post-colonial era, because certainly between the two wars, uh, Syria, the Levant, uh, Lebanon, uh, Transjordan, Palestine were very much the neighbors of the West. You know, but what you've seen happen after 1948 is that only the part of Palestine that became Israel is considered somehow Western, and the rest of the uh, um, of, of the people and the land adjacent. Have, have been othered. And, you know, you, you've written about how migration is, is old as time and um, that the Westphalian state is a very recent phenomenon of, of, of grounding the population of a certain region to, to a state and to a delineated territory that they cannot move out of without losing that identity. So, how how does this relate to today's attitudes towards migrants and towards refugees? It takes me back to the notion of empire, because it was not only the Ottoman Empire, but also, you know, the uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, you had you didn't have to have this sense of a single hegemonic 
identity in order to create the notion of the state. And so people of many different ethnicities and many different religions also, particularly in the Ottoman Empire, moved around freely. And actually that kind of movement is what makes the Middle East still so very special. But, you know, you can go back to you can go back in history. I remember walking along the Hadrian's Wall and going to a wonderful little museum at the wall. And uh, among one of the exhibits was the arrows uh, of the Syrian archers. So, of course, you know, the Romans had Syrians um, in their army based up at Hadrian's Wall. Um, and of course, they were from from everywhere. So. I think throughout most of history, people have moved, they've migrated, uh, and this notion of the, the the hegemonic state made up of only one uh, ethnicity or one religion is uh, certainly in, in historical terms is, is quite new. One of the fears uh, that uh, some people have as an outcome of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, is that if we don't move in the direction of uh, to reduce inequality um, and to create a greater uh, state governance of healthcare, et cetera, et cetera, that we might move in the other direction. You know, we've seen what that could mean in in uh, Hungary, uh, in Brazil, and maybe heaven forbid in the United States if Trump is reelected, which would be moving again in this kind of nationalist protectionism. So that there is a fear that things could move in that direction, although I certainly hope not. I certainly hope that we will be looking at uh, greater mobility, some kind of more global response to uh, health concerns and health care around the world, uh, and also greater protection for our planet. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was researched by Anu Shukla and the editorial team at The New Arab and produced by myself, Gaia Karamatsa. Remember to subscribe to The New Arab Voice on Google, Apple and Spotify and wherever else you listen to your podcasts.